so we're going to do the third part of this now or fourth part i don't even remember anymore um we're going to cover some cases same sort of thing so i guess just talking about the reasoning behind doing some of this stuff. once again just sharing our um, clinical opinion and to form and to share our experiences so that we can deal with these low incidence high consequence events should they happen to us so we're going to be talking about a few cases i think five in total um uh, so the cases are going to be a case about sort of cerebral infection and the management of that empirically cases about anorectal trauma um, a complex intubation case um, and some stroke mimics uh, and also a particularly unwell child who presented here to Auburn ED and maybe some of the management issues that we had around that as well. Okay. So the first case um, I'll, I'll talk about is a 26-year-old male who was brought in by his uh, girlfriend um, after having had a witnessed tonic-clonic seizure at home. It sounds like he had a period of apnea in the post-ictal phase um, and the girlfriend said she performed CPR for about 30 seconds to a minute. Um, she's not BLS trained and she had stopped the CPR by the time the ambulance had arrived so I'm not sure how necessary that CPR was. Um, patient was now GCS 15, uh, was a category 3 patient uh, and was brought into one of the acute beds here at Auburn. Um, Taking a further history, uh, the last in the last month, the patient, as per triage, had had a few episodes where he had been staring into space and had been unresponsive for a period of about 15 or 30 seconds. The, um, the girlfriend just wasn't sure what to make of that, maybe thought that he was a bit not eating all that well. The other significant history was that he had recently completed a course of TB treatment um, for which he had been on it for 18 months. Uh, he had three negative uh, AFB samples from sputum um, and a normal chest x-ray that was on the system from a month ago. He was discharged from the Parramatta Chest Clinic. Okay. Did you comply with his TV yeah, so allegedly. Uh, it sounds like um, he was having to check in on a monthly basis and by all accounts was compliant with his TB treatment. Um, the vector was, I think, an uncle overseas who had, who had got it. There was, I couldn't find any documentation about the drug resistant nature of the TB, which obviously was a concern as the case progressed. Um, so probably about 15 minutes after his arrival into the bed, he had a self-ceasing tonic-clonic seizure that lasted about two to three minutes. He was very agitated post-ictally. And, you know, in that setting, I had a gentleman who was 26 and was just sort of pulling everything off, wanting to get out of bed. And so I gave uh, benzodiazepines as a means of sedation and chemical restraint to facilitate further investigation rather than an anti-epileptic management. Um, he then became sedated but then started having abnormal uh, posturing. So he had decorticate posturing after sedation with full monitoring on he wasn't hypoxic or hypercapnic on the uh, on the on the entitled CO2 trace. And at that stage we transferred him to the resuscitation bay. Was the posturing unilateral or bilateral? Bilateral. Yeah. yeah, bilateral, both upper limbs. So I wasn't sure if there was some sort of abnormal electrical event. It was decerebrate posturing primarily, um, so hyperextension of the upper extremities with fixed uh, flexion of the, uh, a fixed extension of the lower lower limbs. Um, but given that there was no focal findings, I, I was just presuming he had a diffuse cerebral infection, was sort of the, 
the differential that I was going for. He then proceeded to, and then the other differential that I had was whether he was having non-convulsive and whether he was having ongoing electrical discharge and then uh, as a consequence of that he was getting hypoxic encephalopathy and then or having a too high metabolic demand in his brain and that was causing him to have abnormal posturing. Um, I guess the three points that I sort of wanted to talk about and maybe extrapolate on was I think we've touched on this before in previous case discussions about the approach to there's two types of patients in my mind how I divide it and I'd be interested to sort of know how you approach this curve particularly in kids two types of patients with epilepsy who come to the ED um, there are the ones who have had the seizure and are now postictal and stable um, and you're managing and then there are the ones who are in active current status yeah. um, and who are having either recurrent seizures with no recovery or just a prolonged single seizure. Yeah. I think I divide them into two distinct categories when I, when I manage them. And so for me, the management of a patient like this who was having incomplete recovery in his GCS between yeah. episodes, I tend to treat with two lots of benzos and then progress to a barbiturate. Yeah. and then start a second-line anti-epileptic agent yeah. um, and then com compare that with someone who's had a seizure and is presented to the ED and is stable and awake. In those patients, I give a benzo if the patient's going to have an active seizure, but I generally load with a second-line anti-epileptic yeah. in that situation prior to doing anything else. As always, um, look for a secondary cause rather than a primary seizure problem. Yes. The main one, especially for the sick ones. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So just just in case, will, will this mic catch what you're saying? Probably. Yeah. So it was um, just to always look for a secondary cause as well. But that's my approach. And I guess just talking through some of the reasoning for that. So the main reason for doing that, and by that I mean skipping the second line anti-epileptic, is because, first of all, the evidence isn't great that they are good at seizure cessation. They're often very good at preventing recurrent seizures, but they're not good at terminating an active seizure. The second uh, reason for that is the peak onset of action is about 30 minutes after administration. So if if I'm anticipating that the patient is going to continue to seize for another 30 minutes, then I should be reaching for something more than just levetiracetam or valproate or, or phenytoin, whatever you choose to use. Um, so in that situation, I prefer to use barbiturates as a second-line agent, and then I move on to um, benzodiazepines. Hey, Kevin. I was just talking, I guess I'd also be interested in your point of view too. Uh, with, this is a gentleman who's 26 years old, um, had a history of TB, completed treatment about a month prior to presentation to the ED, came in with a single seizure witnessed by the girlfriend, um, had in the month prior had had three episodes of what sound like absence seizures where he was staring off into the distance breaking conversation for about 30 seconds. In the ED, he proceeded to have another seizure and then had abnormal posturing, not focal, just sort of decorticate, posturing rather. Um, I was given, he was given medaz because in the postictal phase he was very agitated um, and then transferred to the resus bay but was continuing to have abnormal posturing and sort of vague neurology and not really recovering completely. I guess the, one of the talking points that I had was when I managed this patient, I, I deviated from the standard management pathway of benzos, second-line anti-epileptic barbiturates, um, and I just went benzos and thiopentone and intubated the patient and then gave the levetiracetam. Um, and I guess the reason for that is, in my reading at least, uh, there are two types of patients who come in with, with seizures. There are ones who have had the seizure and the seizure is stopped. And then in those patients, you have time to give the second line anti-epileptic pre to prevent recurrence. 
But from the data that I've read, the second line anti-epileptics are not very good at seizure cessation. They're good at seizure prevention, but not good at seizure cessation. And so when I have a patient who's in active status at the moment and seizure cessation is my obvious priority, in those patients, the peak onset of action for these drugs are about 30 minutes. And so I tend to give the benzos and then if they're still seizing after two doses of benzodiazepines, I almost then consider intubating them with a, with a barbiturate to stop the seizure and then load them to prevent further seizures once the barbiturate has taken effect. Uh, two questions. I missed the technical reasoning there, but I keep going. Yeah, Kevin. One is uh, the time. Was it daytime, evening? This was a 7 p.m., 8 p.m., yeah. And the patient fever? No, no fever. Okay, so this is what I say. Firstly, you're giving anti-epileptic medication, right? Both midazolam and palpentone are very effective ones. Yeah. So it's not that like you have to know the patient from treatment. Yeah. Right? Secondly, it's about resources. Yeah. So if I'm paying resources, okay, for a couple of lines, things ain't go at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At West you know, the the capital will be going the same time as you do the RSI. Yeah. Right? But in Auburn at 7 p.m., you need to think about which starts from at that time. Yeah. And I reckon Alpendron is a better drug at that time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the the capital went in. Almost immediately before the uh, maintenance drugs went for the in, for the for the sedation, so it went in within a space of fifteen minutes or so. No um, so yeah, that was sort of the reasoning behind that, and I thought yeah. that's that's certainly something that I've done a few times now in my practice. For whatever reason, I've had a couple of patients present in status now, um, and uh, and I've done it now a few times, and I've found it to work really really well because it's just immediate. Well, it's is more effective, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, than and Kepra. I mean. Yeah, exactly. And none of those agents have very good evidence, one versus the other, either way as well. So, saying that, I, I'll put the pediatric skew to it. So, um, you can imagine at the kids' ED, we do see a lot of stains epilepticus. Um, the, following the usual pathway, meaning benzo-benzo, and now what's, it, what's um, uh, common is Keppra. Yep. I do see um, seizure cessation after the Keppra. Okay. Anecdotal evidence. Yeah, okay. And then um, it's not very common we actually intubate status epilepticus in the kids' ED because that we actually achieve termination. Yeah. It's not um, the proper status, we tend to not have cessation after two doses of benzos. Yeah. But then when you give the next, whether um, some people give, um, you know, some other mm. ones or Capra, we do see the cessation. Mm. So the question really here about what you're saying yeah. is. Is this patient should be intubated now? What were the indications? Yeah, so my main concern was he was very, very agitated yeah. uh, and he was having ongoing neurological abnormalities. So something to me was suggesting this could be focal because of the abnormal posturing, um, the age, the history of TB. You, you understand yeah, so I needed to facilitate investigation. Yeah. Um, I agree that in patients with in this situation, keeping them not intubated uh, and not paralyzed is ideal for ongoing monitoring um, of their seizure. Uh, but for me here, I mean, in order to get this patient physically out of this hospital to or, yeah. to Westmead, which is where I thought he needed to go, uh, I would need to tube him anyway for transport. So that was also in the back of my mind. Um, and maybe it did affect how aggressively I went for the airway. And I, yeah. did, I didn't really have any qualms about just knocking off his respiratory drive with a high dose of barbiturate because I thought, well, that'll stop the seizure at least, and then I can get on to actually diagnosing the problem. Yeah. The other challenge I would put to including Charles over here, so you have an emergency physician, a critical care physician on site. Yeah. But if you don't have that, or your skill set is less than that of you know, the consultants being around, would you do something different? Yeah. yeah. Would you go mother start intubating this patient or try something first? Well, for me, I will, I will take precautions. Yep. So, 
it's a must that integration is needed. Yeah. But it's kind of a, I have a big way. Yes. The possibility of I can control the seizure. Yeah. I'm trying to control. Yeah. I think also it's important to remember also, you probably already think about it, but call for help early. I don't want to be called mm. when you're thinking, once you think, should I incubate this patient, right? Mm. Today, you're you should call us. Mm. Yeah. Because that's where maybe we can help you make a decision to get out and share the responsibility as well. And if you're busy, don't call us yourself. Get the senior nurse to call us. We don't worry. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Or then just call code blue if you have to. Don't forget, you get your aid on coming down, your MOIC comes down. You suddenly got more people to help. Maybe Esther can come get you the second access you need. Yeah. The ADOM can call the consultant. Yeah. So same thing happened to us. Uh, this patient came with agitated behavior. Mm -hmm. And you believe he's strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were not sure whether it's is a pathological or sooner or not. Not sure. Sorry. But there was some history. Yeah. So we tried to put or this is some alcohol I suppose. So yeah. Alcohol in delirium is literal delirium. So we gave uh, 10, 20, 30 of diazepam. We put a control. Oral or intravenous, IV. sorry? IV diazepam. Okay. 10 milligram, 20 milligram, 30 milligram diazepam, no control at all. So we couldn't have it, the, the wrong was there. So yeah, I think I remember, I heard about this patient yeah. uh, on the grid. As you said, I went up. Yeah. Then, of course, we have planned everything for integration. As he, as he doing this, guys, one this, must you know that at some point of time, integration will be there. What they gave, um, I went on that surgery. Even after that, they put midazolam and uh, morphine infusion. It was, he was not, he was gagging and getting up uh, with a tube. Mm. He, he didn't know anything to do. At that time only, they called the ICU and the ICU said, well, okay, this patient answer. Yeah, look, it's, it's complicated uh, in those situations with behavioural disturbance, what to do. Uh, I can tell you my approach. It, when things are unclear like that, I, I always just fixate on the worst possible scenario in that situation. I think the temptation is often to say, oh, maybe pseudo seizures, maybe behavioural. But what you'll often find is that the pathology is in places, especially when you don't look for it. So my advice would always be to go for the assume the worst case scenario. And, um, and in that situation, that would have been an encephalitis or a traumatic head injury if the history was unclear. And then in that situation, you need to control all the variables that you can control and then seek to define what is uncontrolled. So what is the cause? And you need LP, CT imaging or whatever, but control the variables that you can, which is often behavioral and airway protection and all of that. So my approach in those situations would have been to do a chemical takedown, come seizure management, and then intubate him. And generally, morphine and midaz is good, but when you're dealing with behavioral things, I usually have a barbiturate or a, or a propofol or thiopentone running on the background, usually propofol. And I usually have that with fentanyl because they're both quite rapidly acting. So if, if something happens and you want to extubate the patient, you can quickly wean those agents off. But that's just a personal preference and not something. The, the only caveat to fentanyl is don't forget the serotonin activity. Oh, yeah. If you're getting serotonin syndrome seizure, don't need fentanyl. That's the only exception. Yeah. Okay, so we'll just move on to the next part of the case because this case had a few parts. Um, obviously, the intubation, uh, I sort of raised this as an issue, I think, uh, outside of the context of the resuscitation because there were a few things that went wrong. But it was one of those things where I was team leading. I had a very young 26-year-old guy, and you know how this is, Kevin. It's like you just look at the patient, you're like, actually, pretty easy tube. I had a very keen resident there. I was like, oh, maybe I'll 
do a bit of teaching on the side. I think I had one of the CMOs as well. I think Nolly might have been there as well. So I said, Nolly and the resident, I told them, take the airway, do your assessment, come back to me with a plan. And I was preparing everything else for the for the tube and then the post-tube care. Obviously, as soon as we pushed the thio and the rock, the first SATS probe broke. Then we got another SATS probe. That SATS probe broke. Then I was intubating him on the pediatric SATS probe with the monitor in front of me on the analog screen. Then the entitled CO2 dysfunctioned. Then the resident already nervous by all of this dysfunction, dropped the CMAC um, and the CMAC came off, the camera came off the plastic sheath and the and then that didn't work. Then, <laughs> no, I felt like something was against me. And then obviously to top it all off, he, the poor resident put the direct, I said, just go direct then, cause it looked like a pretty straightforward airway. He puts direct uh, laryngoscope in and blood just comes flying out of the oropharynx and this gentleman had bitten his tongue. So at this stage, luckily we had pre-oxygenated well. And I guess this is one of those situations where you kind of, you know, thank your lucky stars that you did pre-oxygenate. I pre-oxygenated for about 10, 15 minutes while I was preparing everything. Um, and so I had time. So I went to the head of the bed um, and I, it was one of those situations where you remember the fellowship teaching and you're like, don't go with the, the video scope. So I, I went, I went uh, with, the, with the direct and had to, there was a grade three airway with just blood everywhere. So lots of suction and used a bougie um, blind and I actually it was in half a mind to get the ultrasound out, which is another thing that I was going to talk to you about in this situation. When you look direct and there's absolutely nothing, um, I ended up using the resident to put a hand on the trachea to confirm that I had put the bougie in the trachea. But the other option on reflecting on the case and speaking to some anesthetic colleagues was just to get an ultrasound machine, pop the linear probe on there. Obviously, it takes five minutes for the ultrasound machines to wake up sometimes. But, you know, if you're anticipating, that might be another potential um, Thing that I could have done differently and had the linear probe directly over the trachea and I could have visualized the bougie going into the airway and then railroaded the tube which ended up what ended up happening in this situation so that was a little bit of a, so it's a, of a mess. It's a, it's a cool sexy thing to do but the, the last thing to say is not many will feel comfortable saying I can see the ETT coming. Mm, yeah. That's my opinion. I, I personally would still even though I use ultrasound often I don't use it in the airway often mm. as much as I want to. Mm. Yeah but there's, there's actually evidence for that. Yeah, there is. A couple of things. Uh, intubation from health. Um, firstly, um, you and I know, and uh, we're doing a bunch of teaching at the moment going through that, and the assessment of difficult airway uh, has a lot of faults. Yeah. All your lemons and so on uh, are not 100% in terms of yeah. assessing. So, you know, up to about 30% of patients who have an difficult airway, for those people who actually looked for a difficult airway and didn't find one on this initial assessment, actually had a difficult airway up to about 26 to 30%. Mm. So just because in the outside looking at okay, you always got to think about that. Yeah. That's one point to think about. Um, the equipment failure, I'm not sure how that could have happened. Uh, it's just one of those anomalies. Is to try to make sure this happens. So especially the second Probably yeah. as well, and the ETCO2. Yeah. Like, well, I there's actually a central problem causing three problems. Yeah. Three problems. I think it ended up being the monitor. I think that was the problem, and so I ended up tubing with the transport monitor in the end. Um, the third question is without ETCO2, oh, sorry, the third question is difficult intubation, and what do you do to get tube? I mean, yeah, if you've got blood and stuff like that, then you have a video scope, it's going to uh, smear onto your scope. You can't see very well. Much better with a direct scope. Okay. Um, except in this case, if you're worried about active TB, a video scope yep. may be less. less 
slash uh, risks to you. Right? Uh, stage, yeah, wait for this, right? Exactly. And I have to preface that uh, I write this but in the order that it, it happened except for the me noting the TB, which happened after I tubed the pain. So, I, I mean, I'd put it there so we could have that discussion yeah. before, but yeah. I actually didn't even read the documentation on the patient because all this just happened within the space of about 15 minutes. But at um, the time, it's about yeah. so, you know, presumably you've got some PPEs on. Yeah, I had an N95 on, and I don't think I had goggles, but, uh, you know, which I obviously regretted at the end, but everything else uh, was so okay. So, to help is important, yeah. right? Uh, and how do you confirm a tube without ETCO2? Yeah. Firstly, you don't have a chemography. Yeah. Do you have a colometric? No. So we are. No, I think it based up. So it may be in the research trolleys that we bring out of the TV. So we got one, I think, that we bring out, say to go to level one and level two. Um, that probably is colorimetric one, probably. Okay. But so that's a secondary for the entitled CO2. Yeah. Alternatively, you can get another machine to do entitled CO2. We mm -hmm. know the entitled CO2 is the gold standard. Mm -hmm. right? But yes, there are times that everything fails. We don't have entitled CO2. How do you confirm? So one of the things is filling the filling yeah. clicks. And uh, on one study, it says it's very specific. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I, there was an esophageal intubation in there as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, with the so with the CMAC, I went in and I was like, oh, the CMAC got fixed and got handed to me, and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll just try, and that was esophageal. So then I, I pulled out, and then I did the bougie first, and then the, the so. Is one of the second bit that you can do, I mean, all the fogging and so on, or listening, they're full of faults. So yeah. I, don't, I don't believe any of that. Uh, another way that's been taught about is you keep push the bougie down. Oh, yeah. If okay, it's not 40 centimeters and not stopping, then you just solve this. Yeah. Uh, That's a good idea. Yeah, that. like 20 centimeters, you're not in the lump. Don't push too hard and you perforate the lump. Yeah. Right? So that's one way of, uh, of confirming. That's a good thought. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Another way uh, is the ultrasound. Yeah. Okay. And I had a look at an ultrasound maybe about four or five years ago. The concept is very clear and it was not hard to see no. in a sheep. Yeah. Now, I've been trying to look at it on a human, it's not easy. Depends mm. on the neck. Yeah. I mean, this, this was a young guy whose trachea was palpable externally. Yeah. So I figured there wasn't much, going to be much soft tissue distortion. Um, so it was a thought that came to me after the fact. I was like, oh, maybe I could have used ultrasound to confirm position as it stood. What I'll say is in the future when we have much better patients, after they chew, have a look at it. Mm. But nothing like a dynamic you can see coming through. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of train sign. You see a, a series of yeah. rails or something like that. Correct. Yeah. Parallel lines, but yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, how, how possible that would be in the future. Yeah. So, okay. Hmm? No, it was less than ideal. Yes, it was a posterior tongue laceration um, that had clotted and had been disturbed by the introduction of the laryngoscope. Uh, and so they just started oozing blood into the oropharynx, which was less than ideal. The other thing as well is, I'm not sure whether anyone's heard of the SADA technique. So SADA technique, you can look it up, um, it's about how to decontaminate or clear the suction of the airway while um, there's a lot of vomit or a lot of mm. blood in the airway. And it's actually putting in um, probably even two suctions. On either side of the mouth, yeah. yeah. And actually parking on one side. Yeah, yeah. that's called a cellar technique. Yeah, that's another thought as well. Yeah. Especially the flexible ones, I assume, because they would be less... So the, the usual yanker actually may not have enough flow rate even. So oh, okay. It's really torrential. Yeah. Because you actually remove the top down. I don't get the oh, okay. massive suckers, which yeah. is hard to find. But it's disconnected. Remove it and put it in. It's a good idea. Technique. 
uh, meaning there's a lot of um, either vomit or blood coming through. We actually put even two suckers, remove the yankers, and they actually have mm. the there. It's been done. Yeah. And those Steve Walker, yeah, Walker, yeah. Uh, retrieved, couldn't intubate, and uh, went to ED and was intubated. There was two suckers in the mouth. And uh, obviously, it reduced the, the space yeah. because there's more instrument in there. That's the only way to visualize. Yeah, well. It's interesting, isn't it? I hadn't thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense yeah. as well. But then you ask for it, no one knows what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the problem. Yeah. And But I like the bougie idea, though. That's yeah. a good one. I'll definitely use that next time, actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. It makes a lot of logical sense. Um, so this is the CT. Obviously, uh, I, I can point it out to you on the screen. So, so yeah. Um, so yeah, two distinct lesions, one in the pontine, one in the non-dominant, oh, the other one the parietal lobe, which looked like, to me at least, cerebral TB was my biggest concern. The, I think the radiology registrar initially wasn't keen to call it, but then called me back and was like, this looks classical for cerebral TB. Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't get it. Is that blood? No, that's not blood. It's, it's calcification around a granuloma. Yeah. And then, I guess the other one is, you know, like, if there's only one lesion-native uh, primary malignancy that is GBM. Yeah. Or metastatic. Yeah, um, you say metastatic, you tend to have multiple. Yeah. And I think that was your Go back to that skin, only on one slice. Midline is maintained. Yeah. That area itself is on this hypotense, but surrounding area, sulci are okay. Yeah. So it's probably going on for a little while and not an acute uh, yeah. swelling. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it was. I thought that was clear enough for an epileptic focus, but I agree. I think there wasn't enough. There's not enough active inflammation around that area. It does have an element of. Easy to see retrospectively. Yeah. There was interesting as well. You mentioned the history of absence seizures, which is not very mm. common for focal causes. No, exactly. It was something else was going on. At least that's what I thought. Um, so I guess now these were the sort of thoughts that I had. Empirical treatment wise, I mean, the infectious disease consultant on call was extremely hesitant to treat empirically for TB, which once I read the literature made a lot of sense to me. At the time, I wasn't really sure what the right answer was. Um, and obviously, I'd sent off further investigations. And I guess in these situations, when you find weird things in weird places, you should think about things like HIV uh, as a potential actual background illness to all of this. So we sent off the HIV tests. And just to preface as well, the current recommendations from New South Wales Health, you do not, do not require consent from patients to test for HIV, no. Uh, so, um, yeah, if you look at the CI guidelines. In any scenario. Yeah, and, um, and if you look at NHS, uh, they've actually released a, their, their um, what is it called? Their chief medical officer about three months ago released a, um, a statement on HIV testing and their, their, their recommendations for HIV screening in the population, they recommend screening for diseases like community acquired pneumonia should be getting HIV screening. If the incidence in your local population is more than one or ten, one or two in 10,000, yeah. which I think in this area, it might actually fall under because Westmead is a very large HIV clinic. So yeah. um, it's interesting, interesting. Uh, but it's always something to think about. I think there's a philosophical discussion about consenting for testing for diseases. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 
But uh, I think that's just an important reminder that ECI has an announcement from two years ago on their website, which says that consent procedures for HIV have now changed. You don't need to go through a whole consent procedure to perform a HIV test on a patient, particularly if you've got suspicions that they might be present. Um, yeah, exactly. So I was going to sort of talk a little bit about that. Um, so I think for me as well, I, the documentation review was a bit embarrassing in this case because obviously I tubed and sent him to CT with Nolly and then I sat down and I was like, my eyes were just slowly becoming more and more like dinner plates as I was reading his background medical conditions. Uh, and I think also that pre-oxygenation part and the management of status, which we talked touched on a little bit. Um, now, the empirical treatment of cerebral TB. So there's two types. There's active cerebral TB infection and there's the presence of cerebral tuberculomas, which are two different things. So active TB suggests an active infective process and associated meningitis, which has its own significant morbidity. But you can also get benign granulomas growing in the brain, which do not indicate active disease, but can be epileptic focuses. And so for this patient, that's what ended up happening. There was a trifecta between neurology, the infectious disease people, uh, and, and I think, and yeah, they're, they're trying to figure out whether the patient needed a brain biopsy or not. It took them 10 days to, to, to decide on that, and they withheld empirical TB treatment until that point. And the, the ID consultant wrote a very detailed, well-articulated note explaining why he thought that was, the, that was important. And I think the main thing is it would guide the type of therapy, the drug resistance nature of it, and the duration of therapy, and the yield from CSF cultures and uh, direct brain biopsies in the presence of treatment, even 24 hours of treatment, would drop so significantly that it might require multiple biopsies to get a positive sample. And it would also mean that the patient would have to undergo more procedures. So overall, the morbidity would have been much higher. And so I think the bottom line for me is treat for the common stuff. So your keftriaxones uh, and dexamethasone, so don't ever forget about the dexamethasone in this context as well. Continue to treat for meningitis, continue to treat for bacterial brain abscesses. Think about TB and then therefore think about other diseases like HIV, but generally they don't require empirical treatment in this case because they're not morbidity changing and they can change the patient journey going forward. This gentleman ended up having negative cultures from both his brain biopsies anyway, and he got diagnosed with benign granulomas in the brain. History sounds more like a, a gradual thing. Mm, rather than an acute yeah. infective process. So as well. that was interesting for me to hear that um, from them. Did you give a cycle? Yes, yes, yes. So that's one thing for, to think about. Right. When patient you're intubating for seizure, you're treating for meningitis, always think about treating for encephalitis. Mm. And a big part is viral encephalitis and seizures. Right. Mm. And you're going to give anyway, so I just throw it in. And, and that also fits with the kids as well. So don't forget yeah. um, HSV encephalitis also in kids. Yeah. Um, they do actually have mortality. Um, Unit is 10%. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Second question for the D. Now, it's becoming, there's no criticism of you, you know, also depending on the acuity of the, the, the situation, but we can always reflect. This is becoming a, a normal thing for me to say to the juniors, and I find that especially when the interns and residents come to me, I think I've talked to you about it, is you come to me about a patient, okay, and you haven't read the previous notes. Yeah. Right? It's on computer, it's digital age, it's very available, so even for the patient that come to me acutely, I try to spare mm. the resource to look for all the information which could be by. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that this is often not a job to delegate to the juniors because it requires context. You need to know what you're looking for in order to look for the right thing. 
Um, and so th that was with this case as well. The juniors had just sorted by physician notes and all the TB notes were in outpatient clinic notes. And so it all got completely missed. I didn't have any of that background until I looked myself and on unfiltered notes and I knew what I was looking for. So I think it is, it's not something that you can just tell the medical student, oh, can you go look, here's my first net password, go look up the notes and tell me what you think. It requires a bit of... Emergency medicine, people can turn up with lack of information. Yeah. And so the PPE is important. Yeah. And just assume the worst is, I guess, one of the central points you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the, the classic one for PPE intubation is meningococcus as well. Mm, yeah. So fever, seizure, anything there, just wear a PPE. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The face shield is more appropriate than the problem. Um, the as long as you're wearing uh, some, sort of that, some sort of respirator protection, so an N95, to, and then yeah, eye shield, face shield. I, don't th I think direct comparison between face shield and glasses more is yeah. really better than the other. Yeah. yeah. Whatever's more comfortable at the end of the day. I, I use face shields because I tend to fog my glasses, but um, either way, one of the things. A couple of months ago, uh, we treated a new couple yeah. at Westmead, and I did intubation. At that time, not knowing patients, very sick, and I had an N95 and just uh, goggles, and I didn't have to have uh, antibiotic. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, once you have the N95, um, even with COVID, the the in, the uh, aerosol generation from an intubation is pretty low. It's not as much as even a cough. So yeah, you just need to make sure the way that you are careful though, and progressing with things empirically. All right, we'll move on to case two. Sorry. We can't finish five pieces. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to. I'm thinking ahead to see what might be interesting. We might just do two more instead of the three more. Then um, I'll fly through this one pretty quick. So this is an anorectal trauma case. So 50 year old male. Uh, it was a pre-hospital uh, arrival at a trauma center. He had multiple penetrating stab wounds to his anorectal region. Was hypotensive, very agitated, in an attempt at deliberate self-harm. Um, he had been given. 250 milligrams of intramuscular ketamine to facilitate transport and was now a GCS of nine um, and was, as you can see, uh, hemodynamically quite unstable. So a trauma call was activated, as was a mass transfusion protocol. Um, on arrival, it was interesting because I was actually not um, allocated to a team uh, on this day and I was floating as the consultant on in this is it Nepean. So I was floating at Nepean. I wasn't part of a team, but it just so happened to happen during handover time. So the actual consultants that were managing the acute side were handing over and there was four registrars in this resource. And it was just fascinating because I just walked past because I was kind of bored and wanted to see what was going on. And there's no team leader. There was four registrars three of whom were trying to put a cannula and one of whom was doing some jaw thrust on a very agitated gentleman uh, with nothing productive happening. Um, and it was just one of those situations where we debriefed afterwards about, and they were all of them quite senior, it's just one of them just needed to take charge and direct, which is, I didn't even have the pre-hospital information, I just rocked up and started just telling people what to do and within five or six minutes, it's, there was a palpable difference in, in, in how organized the resus room felt. So I thought that was an interesting point to bring up. The other main point that I actually wanted to bring up in this, um, in this setting was, you know, how do you think about the patient journey in the context of a trauma? And so you think about the pre-hospital care and then the emergency management and resuscitation. So this gentleman got MTP, got TXA, but was still actively hemorrhaging from his anorectal area. Um, so within the rectum itself, he was having massive volume PR bleeding. Uh, it was the surgical registrar and, and myself, we put a large bore IDC 
into the rectum. Balloon tamponaded the hemorrhoidal plexus, which stopped some of the bleeding, although he continued to bleed through the um, through the IDC at that stage, and then we clamped the IDC. Uh, we then thought about primary hemorrhage control versus definitive hemorrhage control. So I guess what that means is, does the patient need to go to theatres to get ex surgical exploration to stop the bleeding, or is he stable enough to go to interventional radiology where there might be more definitive control because they could maybe embolize one of the, uh, the major art art arteries coming off the femoral, which is probably the likely cause of this. Um, after which point he probably will need to go for a laparotomy because he's probably perforated various areas. So I think what we ended up doing was yeah, blocking it, sending him to IR and getting a, a angiogram to make sure there wasn't any obvious uh, arterial hemorrhage and then sent him to theatres and he ended up having a large sigmoid laceration, a complete tear of his external and internal anal sphincters um, and had done some damage to the venous hemorrhoidal plexus, which in the end was what was actually hemorrhaging, not an arterial bleed. Um, and then he had definitive surgery and still remains a mental health inpatient one month later, uh, still having significant behavioral issues. Um, but I think for me, it was all about the way I thought about it, at least, was in that sort of fashion. And it, I'd be interested to see what you think, Kevin. So the way I sort of break it down is, you know, you have the pre-hospital management, and then within the ED, I think the decision really was temporizing versus primary hemorrhage control versus actual definitive hemorrhage control. And what form that would take is, is the definitive hemorrhage control going to be interventional radiology to angioembolize, or is that going to be um, laparotomy to, to oversow something, uh, depending on where the injury is. And I think in this context, we decided that um, given the nature of the penetrating injury, IR was probably going to be more successful than digging around in the pelvis for a, a bleeding artery. Um, and sort of what you thought about that, and if you would have done things differently, I guess, in that context. So, um it's a case. Um, it's a penetrating case. Mm. And um, the, the ED resuscitation uh, in terms of hemostatic stuff is fine. Right? The question about uh, controlling bleeding, there are three ways here. One is a tamponade. If you can do it externally, mm. internally, I say lunar tamponade. And two is surgically, as in open, you grab it and stop it. And third is interventional. Hmm. Okay. Um, nothing wrong with putting a balloon up and try to uh, inflate that and try to control it. So if you think about if it's rectum, well, anything you want to, so if it's in the belly, you can't put a balloon in there because it's not tamponable. Hmm. Right? But if it's in the face, in the tight area, you can put something in there and and balloon it because of tight space. In the rectum, luckily, behind the rectum is your sacrum. Mm. Right? In front is a bladder. So if you can put an IDC in and really blow it up and stop and, and clamp the uh, IDC, as well as doing the as well as doing the um, uh, the rectum and put something in there, and if the bleeding is only in there, you might have a chance. Mm. Okay? Yeah. The problem is if you put a knife in, it could be anywhere you yeah. and it's not something you tap Yeah. Okay, so to me, in this case, I would have gone into a suggested open mm. because you don't know what's happening, yeah. right? Not just the vessel, but also the, the, the bowels and so on, the contamination and mm. so on. I mean, obviously, you got to go by with, a, with an IR controlling. I mean, controlling bleeding definitely with IR, okay? Mm. But uh, it depends on time, how sick the patient was, you know, what's the resuscitation phase, how fast it takes to... Get everything in, yeah. I think we ended up stabilising him enough that we felt comfortable getting him through the CT scanner before, and you know, the surgeons will always prefer that because 
given that what had happened, they were hesitant to go in there and explore because they weren't so sure. The yeah, had had one previous laparotomy for a That's similar thing. I mean, sometimes with this self harm, yeah. it's a very hostile environment for surgeons. So they go in, they spend hours and get out yeah. because it's all stuck down with the lesions. That's a concern. Yeah. So did they go to CT or did they go to IR or both? CT with IR on standby. No, the CT was negative, and then I stood down, and then we brought him back and took him to theatres for. Okay, my anatomy needs to be a refreshment, but there's a lot of venous plexus there. Yeah. So the chances are IR, the role for IR venous is nothing. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah, definitely nothing. I think it was interesting because the surgeons were hesitant to take if there was an arterial bleed, so it was trying to balance that expectation versus what was actually possible. But yeah, again, discussion with surgeons with the anatomy and so tell me what's your likely cause and go for it. Mm, no, exactly. And this is another good example of taking the results to the scanner. Yeah. Yeah, so bring your MTP along, bring your MTP yeah. anytime. Um, and taking your team with you. Yeah, taking yeah. your team with you, two team leading. Yeah. And then the, the, the vulnerable times of when they're actually on the scanner and everyone's going to leave the room, looking at the monitor, we had a problem before. Yeah, no, exactly. Connected. Yeah. So give them some. Yeah. We started a massive transfusion protocol. We actually intubated the patient. We did a lot of things that kind of skewed just because of time and they weren't actually problematic in this situation, except for that fact that there were four registrars there with no team leader as well. So I think that's another... Yeah. And we've, I mean, it's better now these days with trauma team training, but before we really see this, when your shoe causes the dance, people just dance around the patient, but no one is taking in charge and no specific line of vision is yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, that just meant that four very senior doctors were not doing terribly much, despite appearances uh, of doing things. And so the pay... Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's important to remember that team leader role is very, very important, even though it's not as sexy as, you know, the actual tamponading of the trauma. The, the more senior you get is talk about good followership. Yeah. Meaning you say, okay, like the team leader can be doing a good job, but then you think about something that the team leader has it. Yeah. Like, have you thought about TXA for this patient? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And exactly. Then actually identifying there's no team leader, like, do you want to be team leader or you know, how team leader? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. How much time do we have? Uh, 3.30. Okay, all right. Uh, maybe have chance for two more cases, I how think. Um, I've got two interesting ones. I'm just trying to think which one might be better. We've already talked a little bit about status. Uh, in this patient. So this was just uh, just very briefly, this was a case that I had about two and a half, no, maybe a bit longer, four months ago when I was at Westmead on nights. And essentially it was just the most nightmarish circulation management in the world. I had a lady who was BMI of, we'll just fly through this case really quickly because then we do the other two properly. Lady was BMI of 36, came in in status epilepticus, um, had uh, came in with known epilepsy, non-compliant with her regular meds, um, and also may or may not have had metastatic breast cancer. It was all very confusing at that stage. This was about two o'clock in the morning. Um, had already a documented grade three airway on her last intubation about six months ago. Um, and then it was also in the background of all of this, whether or not she was um, taking in drugs, like recreationally abusing cocaine and, and, uh, and marijuana. The main issue, in fact, was not the management of everything, but was actually the management of her... Um, we decided to intubate her because she was just having ongoing seizures. We had given multiple doses of midaz. We'd, had, we'd lost three cannulas throughout the process of the resuscitation, and she was very difficult IV access. 
So then we decided to tube her, and as soon as we decided to tube her, everything just broke. Nothing worked. Um, one of the interns had very courageously cannulated a vein on her omentum, uh, and that had obviously not worked. She had bilateral total knee replacements. She had about 10 centimetres of fat between her skin and her humerus, um, and she had a very large chest wall, and I didn't think I could, I wasn't confident enough in doing a sternal IO. So I had no peripheral access, no um, chance of getting an IO line because both of the knee replacements were done and her ankles were also just completely edematous and covered in um, daphnis, uh, sorry, uh, varicose veins. So this was the only time ever where I've had an actively seizing patient, the anaesthetist bagging after I'd given the thio to stop the, seize, the seizures um, and we put an IJ line in the patient before we intubated the patient. And so I had the anaesthetist there, the, luckily the consultant anaesthetist and the fellow both came down because they realised what a disaster this was. And um, they had they were bagging the patient whilst they initially tried to put an external jugular line in, failed, oh sorry, failed, and then they we ended up putting an IJ line in, a left IJ line while they were bagging her. And then as soon as the IJ line went in, we put gave the rock, gave some more thiopentone and intubated her. Um, that was the most complicated circulation resuscitation I've ever managed in my entire life. But it was just very interesting because we really don't have any options once the IO doesn't work. And I could not think of anything else to do. And she was one of those ladies where the femoral line, you could feel the E. coli bacteremia as you put, as you felt like, because there was just yeast infections and everything in that area. And so we really, and none of us were confident putting a subclavian. She had such a large body habitus that I was worried that the external anatomy wasn't good enough. Was there an attempt with ultrasound? People? Yeah, there was. So whilst we were whilst I was giving multiple doses of benzos, I must have given about 50 milligrams of midazolam in intramuscular and intravenous form formulations. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The other thing is I don't even know how much of it's actually working when I'm not giving it IV. Um, the anaesthetist was trying for about 25 minutes to get a basilic cannula. This is an anaesthetist and an anaesthetic fellow. Like, they were both on circulation. Uh, and it was just it was just very, very interesting. Um, but then we all just came to that shocking conclusion and we were like, oh, I think we need to put a central line in before we uh, before we can intubate her. She'd had about 45 minutes of constant seizures. Yeah, and the thing is, I wasn't sure. So I'd, at that stage, once we had decided, we had like a 25 gauge cannula in her left breast on like some tertiary vein. And I gave very slowly about 250 of thio. Um, and then uh, that stopped things for about five minutes. Um, but yes, once the once the dilator was going in, she started seizing again. And so it ended up being about a four person job to keep basically inline immobilization, bagging, and uh, and then uh, yeah, IJ cannulation. Yeah. Well, my concern with the femoral was that yeah, there was about a 35 kilo momentum fat pad that would have needed to be retracted. And the moment we did that, it was just excoriated and covered in yeast and my worry was look if the ij was impossible that's probably the next step i think um but i never felt so helpless cannulating it was just very interesting i just didn't think there was another option i never thought i'd be in the situation where i put an ij line in in someone who i wanted to intubate before i tubed them before um, ultrasound this is uh, not uncommon mm. for uh, io mm. now with ultrasound io this become very uncommon but uh, one point I make is, and I tell juniors, is uh, the vein is a vein is a vein. Wherever you can find a vein, on the leg, on the varicosities, on the breast, on the abdomen, it's a vein, it's a vein. Yeah. Right? If you can get a vein in, on the scalp, I've used all of them before, external jugular. 
So what you, what you do initially, as you said earlier, a control situation. Yeah. If you get some drugs, control situation, you've got time to work. Yeah. I mean, the pediatric patients are the challenges, isn't it? Similar, similar continuous difficulties with access. Usually their bones are accessible, not, not like in this case. The other thing which is in my head, but it's really hard to reconcile, the last thing I'll do is intramuscular induction. Mm. Yeah. My question to you then is, how do you dose those drugs? Yeah, so be, and with this obesity, even more difficult. And what would you use? Uh, probably still ketamine. Yep. And then paralysis probably sucks still, because mm. you get seizure, you want to know whether they're seizing. It's hard. Mm. It's hard, because I see in the muscle even. Yeah, and I think just to preface for the trainees, you should all be familiar with um, ideal body weight dosing in these situations. So you're not actually dosing to her. 200 kilo body mass, you're dosing to an ideal body weight for most of these drugs. Um, yeah. But. Sucks is the only one that's yeah. memory. Yeah. yeah. Sucks is actual body weight. All I know is for uh, obese patients, they all have They've got to go back. Yeah. Uh, patients are actually large. Yeah. Uh, it's their vagina constricted, you can't see them. So a cut down, if you mm, have to do Yeah, I, I don't. That's, that's one of the procedures that I've actually yeah. never ever done. Um, yeah, it's interesting. There were other options. It's just more, yeah, I, just, I felt completely helpless. It was just very interesting. Um, but yeah, intramuscular induction would have been another good thought. Um, uh, we, we didn't really think about. We uh, mentioned ketamine. So the interesting thing is there's uh, increasing utility of ketamine as anti-epileptic. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah. So, so the, so the uh, neurologists at kids have gotten over that. And I remember there was a case where they were very unhappy. Yeah. There's actually a DP where I first heard from one of the neurologists there. And mm -hmm. look at that. It's actually, it's actually a thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I've managed statuses in uh, in ICU and they've been on ketamine infusions. Yeah, so it is a, it is a treatment. Um, okay, the next case, uh, I'll just fly through again. And this was a lady who was uh, once again at Nepean Hospital, 46-year-old female, back call for an acute stroke, ended up presenting with these absolutely amazing neurological examinations. So Nepean Hospital doesn't have an after-hours stroke registrar, um, and so the ED consultant runs the stroke call, which is amazing because then you get to actually examine and do NIH scoring on these patients. Um, and I just thought it would be a fun thing. So they had a right side of facial droop, right upper limb weakness, but then she just had the most amazing finger agnosia. She couldn't tell me what finger I was holding up. Don't ask me how I got so far into the neurological examination in this patient. Um, and then she had right left differentiation loss. So she was had a weak, <coughs> weak right upper limb. And I kept asking her, when did your right arm go weak? And she would look at her right arm and say, oh, this arm, this arm, this arm. And she wouldn't be able to tell me whether it was her right or left. She had a right lower quadrantinopia. She had amazing uh, upper limb drift as well with pronation and acute dyspraxia. Uh, she was unable to perform more than one step activities on that side. Does anyone, do you guys remember your neuro stuff? I had to look this up afterwards. Uh, but it, these are classical non-dominant parietal lobe signs. Um, and so it suggests an MCA territory stroke um, but I guess as, as you can see it's a stroke mimic um, and uh, and also non-dominant hemisphere involvement so I just thought it was a really interesting sort of array of neurology I'd never actually seen someone with this sort of neurology before because I never examined stroke patients really at Westmead um, I just wanted to also quickly talk about thrombolysis uh, so this lady ended up having two lesions on the brain uh, on her CT scan, unfortunately, and uh, she was a first diagnosis of metastatic colorectal CA that had gone to the brain, and the acute hemorrhage in the left parietal lobe lesion was thought to be the cause for most of her neurology. Um, so just to sort of move that out of the way. Now, for me, consenting for thrombolysis is also something that I'm completely unfamiliar with. 
it's very disconcerting to have the neurologist tell you say this and say this and say this in this way well, when you're consenting and certainly in previous strokes that i've thrombolized now a few times in the last six months um I've sort of had to follow their instruction, but it's made me a bit uncomfortable not knowing what I'm doing. And so I looked up a lot of the research um, and uh, and sort of I've written this kind of two slide uh, um, guide on sort of how to uh, how to interpret some of the evidence. I think the bottom line is within three hours, there's great evidence or reasonable evidence. Um, but then now that people are starting to push out four and a half, five, six, seven hours, depending on the neurology present, the evidence is weaker and weaker. Um, Essentially, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, drugs that we use, we now all use alteplase because it's better than streptokinase. Um, and the sort of hemorrhage rates are, are quoted there as well, sort of 58 in 1,000 and 25 in 1,000 of deaths. Um, but most of the studies are pretty, pretty poorly performed with really bad methodological flaws and lots of statistical manipulation. Um, and also remember that the main thing for me reading literature was that the evidence is really bad in large vessel occlusions and really bad in lacuna infarct syndromes. Like they're just not, that's not great. Uh, evidence. So uh, for me, the large vessel occlusions was the big one because I didn't sort of realize how poor they are. Um, and in those patients, you really should be seeking a thrombectomy because that's got amazing evidence in the right patient with the small core, large penumbra sort of uh, sort of signs. But I encourage everyone to have a read of it. I guess because of the way Westmead has set up their system, we don't interact with this part. But certainly at um, smaller hospitals where I practice, uh, I've had to do this and this was at Nepean, but it would be interesting to see what would happen if there was a, a borderline timed stroke that came in here, what, what the what the plan would be. So the plan would still be to get to Westmead, even if it meant delaying the thrombolysis. First. So yeah. we just call early, assess quickly, call early, yeah. and then we determine first. We're still working here at Auburn, still working on the scanning protocol, which is uh, that is here. Okay. We have we don't have the license and the training for the radiographers is inadequate. Yeah. The um, stroke perfusion here. Yeah. Work in progress. Yeah. Learning is always good. So we're, you know, all these knowledges are good. But I think what this um, highlight initially is, uh, look, I don't know if it's very busy. In the middle of the night, it's very, very busy. And um, so for an emergency physician to spend time doing things they really do, yeah, and do a procedure they really do is going to take a long time for you to do it right, which means that you are particularly compromising this patient. But if you spend all the time on this patient, you can compromise other patients. Yeah. So therefore, I am in agreement that the Westmead models and most other tertiary hospital models is have the neurologist done this often do this. For the best patient care. 100% agree. Because the next uh, technological breach is actually maybe the tele stroke. Yeah, so, tele stroke is a thing now that's yeah. run out of Melbourne. Uh, they've done a few studies there. And it's, actually, it's actually live in uh, somewhere I can't remember where, but in, in one of the rural New South Wales is actually live. Yeah. They actually got established over the past year. As you and I know, 30% are mimics. Yeah. Right, 30% of stroke calls are mimics. Um, that's in literature. That's in Westmead. Yeah. Right? Uh, they made this commitment. 24 hours, and 30% of the time they come in. They go home and tend yeah. right? uh, And also, the 70% that are strokes, not everyone gets one crisis. Yeah. Okay. And so, I don't know the uh, rate of ending up being formalized, but it takes really a lot of time and really careful consideration for them to do this. 
Um, in many institutions, I know less than anyone else. That's my true belief. But I think we've got to think about what our core business is. Yeah, and what the best, what's the best for the patient. Um, yeah. It, 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 we use formalized uh, yeah. Yeah. We do that all the time, and that's okay. Be comfortable to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, I think the my only the only reason I even got interested in this, I, I was sort of a believer in what you did, but it got thrust on me. Uh, it was just one of those things where you feel a bit inadequate when you're like, oh, I don't actually know <laughs> what the literature so says. Clearly, this interests you because it's something you're learning. Yeah. And, you know, we're all here to learn, and that's that's good. But if you sit back and think about what what's actually best, yeah. It would be to have a system that sort of works a little bit like the way Westmead does. No, I agree. I think that's a, a reasonable, um, reasonable thing. All right, we'll just do the last case very quickly because it was um, an interesting one. Hopefully we can sort of get through it without too much of a delay. Another Auburn special. Another Auburn special. So this was a two-month-old child who was unwell for a few days, was pale the day before, called the ambulance. Ambulance said, oh, kid looks fine. You can either come to hospital or stay. Parents elected to stay at home. Again, went pale today. So mum's just saying feeding and then crying and then going a bit yellow slash pale transiently um, and maybe staring off into the distance. A bit unclear. Um, so I just wanted to raise, I think the main thing for me was so during this um, time, there was a, this was about three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. I had a senior ED registrar who's a consultant now, so quite, quite senior ED person review the patient after a resident had reviewed the patient, after the triage nurse had reviewed the patient. So this patient was a category three um, with a respiratory rate of 80 with moderate to severe work of breathing. The triage nurse missed it for whatever reason, and then the resident also missed it and came to me and said, oh, this child looks okay. I think maybe we'll just get peds involved. That was sort of the initial plan. Then I sent the, the registrar to have a look because I was a bit busy with another patient, and within 30 seconds he came up to me and said, this patient needs to go to the bay. It was like it's about to arrest. Um, so I think it just points out that I guess the main your main goal in pediatric assessment within the first 30 seconds to a minute is to identify whether the child is well or unwell. Um, look, there's lots and lots of ways about going about doing that. I would argue that because we don't see kids of that acuity that often, you should have some process. Pediatricians can have this like sixth sense that they develop after decades of practice. Same with the consultants at the kids' hospital curve. Um, but you know, because for us, they it doesn't we don't get sick kids very often. So I would point you to this. You should have a look at this. I should have probably put it up in hindsight up there. But there's a thing called the Pediatric Assessment Triangle. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before. Um, but it's a triangle that assesses work of breathing, level of consciousness, and circulation. And between those three simple things, you can identify how sick a child is and what the cause of the illness is. It's very, very simple. Um, and I've used it even with my minimal peds experience. And I found it really, really helpful. So I would recommend that. I, I use it every single child I see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So endorsed by Kerf formally. Um, so I think what I wanted to actually talk about, and I'll get Kerf to maybe take it away in a little bit, uh, the actual issues that I had were, so we identified that the child was very unwell and then sort of trying to manage the different issues that were going on. So I think for me, it's always about moving away from that desire to intubate everything that's a little bit sick and try to sit back and assess the child. So this kid was pale as, as, as anything, uh, Kevin, and um, was really, really tachypneic, peripherally very shut down. Um, and I guess this is kind of where I wanted to talk to you about some of the systems issues that I faced. I mean, we'll talk about the medical management, maybe, Kerf, if you want to take that away. I'll let you go through the gas and everything. But I can speak to sort of what happened at the time. So 
luckily it was four o'clock so the pediatricians very kindly came in and managed the, the came in to help manage the patient so i had the pediatric consultant and the pediatric uh, moic hospitalist there along with me and the uh, ed senior who was with me um so i'll put to you that the patient was starting to be reviewed at four o'clock the first blood test was at seven o'clock the first access was at eight o'clock the patient was intubated with at nine o'clock and then retrieved at 10 o'clock to an icu it's a long time for a very very sick patient so cannot judge what was going on in that room um the pediatrician got nets involved very early uh which was good and nets i think was called at four arrived probably at about five five thirty because they correctly identified that the child was very unwell um yes yeah yeah uh, and um and so they were able to see that the kid was very tachypneic it's actually very i've never seen it before the next consultant came yeah so the next consultant who was on call came in and the next registrar came in um and so they basically set up an intensive care bed in the resus bay for a period of about five four hours four and a half hours which sort of forced me to sit back because clearly this medically was beyond anything that i i had come across in terms of my expertise the issues primarily were child with what i'll show you to be you know life-threatening metabolic acidosis with severe respiratory compensation so there's a vector yeah 30 yeah 20. yeah sorry i should have included that in my thing yes yeah, so. Yeah, the lactate is the 30 number there um and i've taken the time off but like i said that yeah yeah so uh and this is the chest x-ray so big heart um so we presumed cardiac or metabolic that was the initial differential i guess my question and i guess i haven't really had a conversation with habashi afterwards no antibiotics given until iv access at eight o'clock I said I am. I mentioned it. It's in this. I'm in this position now where I'm clearly outstripped in terms of medical expertise. Yeah. I haven't come across things like this all that often. Yeah. So the most I could do was just say, "Who's going to team me?" Yeah, exactly. And also, I'm of the opinion that if I've got a net consultant and a pediatric consultant there, that's when followership comes in, right? Yeah. I don't want to be that guy who's the disruptive team member and overall worsens the patient care. But you've got to balance that with graded escalation as well. And because I acknowledge that I may not have had the full picture of what was exactly going on with yeah. this child, I decided not to go all the way on the graded escalation. I just kind of went steps in and said, I would suggest I am. And they said, no. And then I said, are you sure you don't want to do I am after about an hour of them trying to get IV access? And I, they still said, no, I don't think it's necessary. So, so I, I would yeah. You know, okay. With thank goodness, that's not the cause for this baby's problem. Mm. Right? But still, yeah, it would be, it would be. I must admit it must have been gut-wrenching to get that first gas back you, at you, lactate you, of 30. This complex, as in when the cases get this complex, a bit like your BMI 36, you yeah. because you lose track of time very easily. Yeah. Suddenly one hour gone. Yeah. And you're going to achieve anything. Yeah. And I think for me, once I realized that there were two very senior pediatric specialists in the room, I took a step back and I started managing the rest of the department. And I guess that involves finding alternative plans for the next resus patient because this resus bed was completely full and they weren't going to be able to move. They had, that had taken out two nursing staff. 
uh, one from special care and one of our ED nurses um, and had taken up that physical space. So we set up the ISO room as a backup resus room. Luckily, the department wasn't falling to pieces at that stage, so that was very lucky. Um, but I sort of shudder to think what would have happened if I had another like septic shock patient. Um, uh, can I put it to you, the fact that you're talking about them now, is you had the questions at the time that's not resolved. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what's getting at. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, that's why I got curved to chase the case up on the back end and see what happened. You're thinking, what could I have done at the time? Yeah. Now thinking back. Yeah. And I, I took a back seat role. It's in my department. I am senior. I'm worried what they were doing may not be uh, what I think is best for the patient. But what should I have done? Yeah. If you were not in the department, and this patient's, you know, gone to the HDU and they did whatever they did up there, Right. You didn't know about it, you wouldn't think any of this. Yeah. That. Yeah. But you were there and you were watching this and you're thinking, I wish something else could have been done. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think for my mind, I once we got that first gas back, because there's about a three hour gap between that first gas and the child being intubated and being retrieved. In my mind, I would have thought that if the kid is that sick, then getting them tertiary level care would have been ideal immediately. The second thought that I had was I would have just put a central line in. I've done one central line in a kid, um, but ephemeral line, even just for bloods. I mean, the fact that it took four hours to get bloods was a bit insane um, in a child this unwell. Uh, and it's in that awkward phase where the kid's awake enough that, you know, an IO is inhumane. Yeah, I just want to say, well, it's just the same as the CMOs or registrars, seeing a specialty registrar or specialty consultant, we're all humans. I don't know who this uh, next consultant. I hope they review the case and I hope they talk about yeah, it. You will, but, yeah. but they are humans as well, and they make mistakes. Yeah. Like you and I make mistakes, and so it's challenging for us to stand up. Yeah. Especially they are, you know, across specialty, and they're specialists that you invited to look after this patient. And if you were to go and challenge them, and especially there is a cross specialty, you know, face uh, in there. Uh, how much can you push and how can you push? Yeah. These are pretty big challenges, but yeah. I put it to you that you're uncomfortable because you're talking about Yeah, that. no, I think like, I've thought about this almost every day since it happened, trying to figure out what I would do next time. Um, I think I would push for IM antibiotics more than I, than I, I did. Think, yeah, and I think... And the other thing that I would contribute, because you're right, the, the, the good thing about our seniority and the way we function is a bit different from them. Nest is literally intensive care. Yeah. So they're very detailed, right? Pediatricians not used to the intensive stuff. We are the ones that push the flow. Yeah, exactly. Processes. We, we, we're very well versed at that. Nest is supposed to be good at that, but quite a lot of them are very detailed. Yeah. And then you get stuck with the details and fixation error, which is clearly a problem here. And that's where we try to save the, the process and the patient. Yeah, yeah I think. It's difficult. It, we are not specialists in that area. Yeah. All right. And uh, so we think, that, oh, do I really not do I really know this? Make sure I challenge you because I'll be made a fool. That's one part of it. The other, I'm going to challenge someone who is specially and challenge their professional identity. Um, but I, I think some of my experience, and I'll say it to the CMOs and registrars, if you really thought hard enough, okay, and if you didn't do something about it, this is what can happen afterwards, you'd be regretting you didn't do something about it. Mm. Right? Try to say something. And try to raise it. Try to find a way diplomatically, professionally, but to raise it. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional is a cusp, right? Mm. But you can also think about a, a circuit breaker, get a third person, mm. someone else to help you, all right? 
uh, using policy or something like mm. that to try to invoke something mm. or well, use the logic. Yeah. 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 I mean, certainly, I think um, I could have done more in the it's acute phase, but it was. I found it really challenging. Well, I want to say to you that you did nothing wrong. Yeah. That patient was looked up by two senior consultants. If this happened somewhere else, you have nothing to do with it. Yeah. You have the rest of the time to look after. Yeah. So it's that feeling of I could have done something more because you're a good doctor. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was just more reflecting back on it trying to think and I was just interested in what you sort of had to say from a systems perspective and I think next time it would be me just being a bit more assertive and uh, and just trying to figure out what their plan was. Specifically for some personalities, I think you and me have quite similar personalities where we try to be congenial. Mm, yeah. We're able to push hard versus being congenial and having a team to work together can be a bit challenging sometimes. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. Again. Yeah, and, and I feel like nets are very much a moving ICU, and so that's the impression yeah, that I got. That, yeah, that's their, that's their marketing strategy. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's hard to. Here for the juniors and CMOs is that if you see a certain, we we talk to you about how to do great research in this, but if you see at a consultant level this is hard to do, no wonder you find it difficult to, right? Yeah. But recognize that it's important. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to just wrap, take it from here, Kerf, and maybe uh, just so go through? I'm going to wrap up some about how yeah. this runs through a few things. So it's, it's, I got it here. No, they, they were, sounds like the common error as always is where is the access? There's no access. I need to get access. Access, access, access. And then everything is gone. Right? What's the, what is, what's the patient's respiratory rate? Nobody knows. Yeah, what, is the patient still shocked? Nobody knows. Yeah, but to be fair, the access was crucial for a lot of fixing of the things you can fix. So I think I just got a brief slide there about the unwell or shocked infant. This is a classic one for a shocked infant. When they're pale, sweaty, classically after beat, they're shocked, commonly cardiac. Why, why, what causing the cardiac problem? Well, they'll find out later. We almost never find out in the acute phase. Okay. Then obviously there's the blue baby, which is a little bit different, which is the second part there. And then obviously don't forget the the the, the pathology for shock is the same for a kid or adult. The same for um, common suspects: obstructive, cardiogenic, distributive, or hypovolemic. Same thing, right? Did they did they fall earlier, or maybe they actually are bleeding somewhere? Okay. Um, feel for the heart. Feel for for the liver. All right, or have a look at the x-ray to make sure that you can see whether it's organomegaly as well. Check the femoral pulses. So poor pulses, again, mean that there's some cardiac thing going on again. Okay, uh, Pre and post-ductal set. So pre-ductal pre is right hand, all right? post-ductal can be left hand or, or lower limbs. Is there a discrepancy of more than 15 to 20? Okay, Again, more cardiac stuff, part of the assessment. Um, and then your common culprit. So cardiac, sepsis, and metabolic. All right, In the infants, especially in the neonates, you need to think about these three. All right, Cover sepsis always because you cannot tell. Alright, if they got fever helps. The other one for the really young ones, they get hypothermic. Alright, hypothermia and shocked sepsis to prevent otherwise in a unit as well. Can you tell it's not cardiac? Well, maybe you can't. So just cover the sepsis anyway and look at the others and think about it. Metabolic, what else can you do? Not much in the acute setting. Alright, still so support them with the usual, um, usual um, stuff. The only thing that's different is send more tests. Okay, you're thinking metabolic, send an ammonia, send, check out what the serum ketones is. Can you fix it? Unlikely. Auburn? No way. All right, going to fix the metabolic problems. We're talking about ICU level, give the enzyme, give the enzyme, give this infusion and, and give intralipid. That's for later. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Always hypoglycemia, no question. So sugar and ketones and ammonia for, for metabolic. All right. Identify and fix. 
Um, anything else specific? Those are the main ones. Okay. So what, what was interesting in this one was um, the parents actually were consanguineous. The Lebanese, they were first cousins. There's another trigger for is there something going on? Part of the assessment for metabolic as well. Think about neurodevelopment, um, especially for the older infants. They say, oh, we're a bit delayed. And guess what? All the three siblings are all a bit delayed. Oh, something's going on there. Or they got a history of seizures. Or oh, everyone in the family's got seizures. Something's going on there. Okay. Um, this one is just a, a, a detailed version of what NETS did. I don't think we need to cover that. The short answer is they went on adrenaline infusion, got intubated. Um, they had a lot of fixation on the potassium, which I disagree because it's actually all acidosis driven. All right. And if anything, they were actually hypercalcemic after all the treatment. Um, and then basically went to ICU. All right. At Children's Westmead. Unfortunately, they didn't do very well. Okay. So at ICU at Westmead, they had an ejection fraction of 10 to 20%. All right, serious heart failure. They're thinking the most common cause in that setting is usually viral myocarditis, yeah, like your Coxsackie or your enteroviruses. Um, but then when they did the virus studies, negative. The metabolic team was consulted very, very early. They say, hey, you know what? Think about mitochondrial disorder. Again, I'm not at, I'm not even well versed at it either. Okay, so don't 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 worry much about the details. But then they went for a bit more procedures, difficult access, so they got tunnel CVC. After that, unfortunately, they went into complete heart block. We don't know why. They actually got ECMO. All right, for the complete heart block. And unfortunately, once they realize that there's some genetic um, condition that they have, they realize that the prognosis is not good. You actually fit the um, clinical picture really well. This condition, which is really rare, only five case reports, you get heart problems, severe lactic acidosis, uh, their brain's no good after a while, and then also die, die quite early as well. And with all that information, they decided that Transplants probably not re not something to entertain, and then they actually had a one one way weaning of the ECMO after five days of ECMO, and unfortunately passed away and day thirteen on the uh, in, C in ICU really. Okay, so that's to wrap it up. So I think the big picture, you think about it, the big big broad brush strokes. The treatment is still the same: shock shock child and shock adult. Give some fluid, get access, get some fluid. No good. Give some adrenaline. All right, the really young ones, don't forget in your neonates, um, the first two weeks of life, is the adult dependent lesion. Maybe think about giving prostaglandin. The problem is we don't have it here. All right, next we'll think about it. Next we'll bring it along. That's the only thing different. All right, simple stuff. Uh, resuscitate them with excess uh, IO if you have to. Well, this was a two month old with the IO anyway, two IOs. All right, give the fluid. All right, cautiously, if you think it's cardiac, maybe give five per kilo instead of 10 per kilo. And then give more if you need to, give the adrenaline infusion to start, and then wait. All right, and then do CPR if you have to, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, any other things to add? I was running through that really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, trauma. Uh, anything in particular? Because yeah, I, I did talk about very briefly the hypovolemia there as well on the top left as a cause for shock. So don't forget. Yeah. NAI, um, always to think about it um, in your shock child. But again, uh, try the volume first. Volume is quite useful. Um, the first volume you usually can give is a bit of fluid, but then maybe the, with a bit more information, you can give some blood if that's if it's relevant. Usually there'll be some evidence of external injuries somewhere, usually. One of the biggest challenges for babies and all kids is when do you take over the airway? That always will come yeah. up. And for a very young baby who's very, very sick, yeah. uh, if you were to go down the intubation road, one, is generally not anxiety, and two, uh, the... Um, the resources is vastly different. Correct. Just keep the child. Yeah, and then I, in this scenario, as well, as well for this child, I wouldn't intubate the child unless it's really imminently needed until NETS comes. 
Yeah, it's likely that specifically this child, as with any shock patient, add out a pediatric, you resuscitate them, give some adrenaline, maybe run an infusion, maybe even tiny push dose adrenaline while you're intubating the patient, uh, rather than jumping in and then the patient's gonna crash and you do CPR. Same thing, same concept, similar. Yeah, okay, questions? Any questions online? I think there's Calista and Paloma. Oh, okay. Anything yeah, else? Otherwise, great. Thank you. Oh, cool. Uh, we'll wrap up then. Thanks very much, guys, uh, those who come online. Great cases, man.